0: Well, hello folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. Welcome back to a new episode of The Sacred Speaks. Today is an interview with Michael Winkleman, and I'm going to introduce him, let you know of a couple of things happening with the podcast, and then we'll get started. So first of all, the credit here goes to the uh, Sarah Costello and the Rutledge Companion to Ecstatic Experience in the Ancient World. This is one of the better books, and I'm making my way through it. I stumbled into Dr. Michael Winkleman through this book, and I'm very grateful for Sarah Costello uh, for certainly kind of initiating my my world, for putting this together, along with Diane Diana Stein and Karen Pollinger-Foster. Um, I hope I pronounced all those correctly. So thank you all for this wonderful work. Dr. Michael Winkleman, you'll see pictures of this book everywhere, but here is his his first, the one that I we really talked about, but then there's also this book, The Supernatural After the Neuro Turn. Check that out, too. Great stuff. Uh, I guess, updates before I introduce Dr. Michael Winkleman, two upcoming episodes. One I've already recorded is with Sean Manso. This is his book, AP Psychedelics, Going Beyond Set and Setting to Achieve Visionary Virtuosity. And also, uh, a connection from uh, when I was reading Dr. Michael Winkleman's work, Dr. Edward Beaver. His book is The Realities of Witchcraft and Popular Magic in Early Modern Europe, Culture, Cognition, and Everyday Life. And I will be talking to him. Really cool stuff. I just saw this back. What did witchcraft and magic in early modern Europe really involve? The Realities of Witchcraft and Popular Magic in Early Modern Europe explores the elements of reality in early modern witchcraft and popular magic through a detailed study of actual cases and broad-ranging interdisciplinary investigations of psychological influence on health, subliminal communication, perception, cognition, and transcultural aspects of shamanism. This is a cool thread that, uh, that I'm on right now, and a lot is happening. Okay, with that said don't want to keep you too long in the intro, I want to get straight to the, um, the interview, but I do want to, interv- to read to you Dr. Winkleman's bio. Michael Winkleman, PhD from University of California, Irvine, and a master's in public health from Ar- University of Arizona, retired from the School of Human Evolution and Social Change at Arizona State University in 2009. Winkleman has engaged in cross-cultural and interdisciplinary research on shamanism psychedelics, and altered states of consciousness, focusing principally on the universal patterns of shamanism and identifying the associated biological bases. His publications on shamanism include Shamans, Priests, and Witches from 1992, which provides a cross-cultural examination of the nature of shamanism and shamanism, a biopsychosocial paradigm of consciousness and healing. Shamanism provides a biogenetic model of shamanism that explains the evolutionary origins of spiritual healing in ancient ritual capacities. This biogenetic approach is expanded in its assessment of the evolutionary origins of religion in his co-authored Supernatural is Natural. These approaches provide a framework for understanding the contribution of psychedelics to the evolution of the human mind and social relations in their continued application and healing. Winkelman served as an expert witness for the defense in the Santo Daime case against the US federal government, which won their right of religious freedom to use uh, for the use of ayahuasca as a sacrament. Winkelman received a Fulbright fellowship for research on the health of ayahuasca church members in Brazil during 2009. Link below, and Winkelman is currently living near Parampolis in the Central Highlands of Brazil. <clears throat> Excuse me. He may be reached through his website, Michael Winkelman M-I-C-H-A-E-L-W-I-N-K-E-L-M-A-N.com. And of course, look to the notes, the show notes, and uh, there are some links to uh, to articles that we talked about. There's also a reference to Ligare, L-I-G-A-R-E. Check both those out. Ligare is going to be showing up again in the podcast, fingers crossed. And uh, for now, that's That's it. For Dr. Michael Winkleman, let me tip the hat a little bit. Of course, check out The Sacred Speaks at thesacredspeaks.com. New website is almost released. I realize I've been saying that for a long time, but quite frankly, this stuff takes a lot longer than anticipated. But the website's amazing. It's amazing. It really does um, provide the container that I, I envisioned, and I've had a lot of help from a fellow named Brandon Alcorn, uh, help if not you know, dragging me along at times. Uh, Brandon's vision's been great, so thank you to him. Uh, okay, As always, the Sacred Speaks is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. Check it out at thecenterforhas.com. It's a boutique integrative practice that uh, my wife and I started many years ago. Uh, check out the band Modern Nations at modernnationsmusic.com. As always, listen to the full song theme music for the podcast at the end of the episode. The song's called Clouds. Uh, and, uh, just for good measure, check out Young Houston, J-U-N-G, Houston.org. Young Center in Houston, Texas is an amazing place to learn stuff like I'm teaching here. Uh, and then I think that's it. I, I don't really have anything else other than a th- these few updates. Um, website's coming out. The series is coming out pretty soon. We're almost, uh, ready to release that. And, uh, and thanks for being here. The, this is, uh, as always, <laughs> this is an amazing process. So, thanks for checking it out, and I hope you enjoy the episode. For now, thank you to Dr. Michael Winkleman. Really appreciate your presence and you making the time, and of course, writing this work and putting it out there for us all to learn from. Thank you very much, and uh, for now, we'll leave it there. Dr. Michael Winkleman, I am here and grateful for your time and uh, and for the wisdom and knowledge that you've put into all this work. Your book here that we're, we're talking about, is we're going to be focusing on shamanism. It's a second edition work, a biopsychosocial paradigm of consciousness and healing. And uh, this book was a wonderful read. It, it went into all kinds, I have a background in neuroscience and psychology, and so i I. I really like ev- evolutionary psychology, this hit on everything. So I'm very eager to uh, pick at your mind a little bit. Thanks for making the time.
1: Well, thanks, gentlemen. I've mean, i had people tell me that you need a background in psychology and neuropsychology and anthropology to understand it, but hopefully we'll make it more intelligible for everybody today.
0: Yeah, I get that. Uh, and I, you were speaking languages that uh, that I've had on the shelf for a little bit. And uh, it, but it seems so relevant, you know what what you're doing. So let's we talked earlier about structuring this a little bit by by giving some of the physiology and the biology and going into social and psychological and spiritual dimensions of healing and um, healers that have existed. You, you know, in your in your book, you quote that starting in the Byzantine area to today, you're looking at the nature of healing and healers. Uh, Cross culturally, which is something I think that uh, should, should, cannot be minimized as far as the importance is concerned. So, would you, I'm interested in your personal narrative, first of all, kind of what got you into this neurophenomenological perspective, as you call it, and uh, what was the, the muse or the juice that got you in?
1: Oh, okay. I thought it was about my whole life trajectory. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can go there too, man. I, that's great.
1: Well, you know, I mean, I, I've, more recently I've had people, you know, ask me like, well, we don't, it used to be, why are you wasting your life? You know, studying altered states of consciousness since then it's a sort of, well, you know, why did you spend your whole career focusing on such esoteric topics? So it's Mm -hmm. kind of forced me into a reflection about, well, why did I seem, you know, so drawn to these things and so obsessed with them? And I mean, I've had a lot of different kinds of experiences along my life that I would say, you know, were extreme traumas. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I I I may have been in um, Nazi military experiments on the Randolph Air Force Base in my second year of life. I certainly was smothered by accident during when I was barely a year old. Um, I, I drowned when I was three years old and had a life review experience. Uh, I had my head sewn up, four stitches, ten points across here without any anesthesia when I was four years old. Uh, that last one just put me into some visionary space. I remember they literally had to drag me out of bed. I would get out of bed to eat and go back to bed. And I, you know, I, I found visionary worlds that way. So, you know, that, that kind of, you know, early traumatic formation, I think, sort of disposed me to alter states of consciousness. Um, I, you know, as I got older, I was, you know, I was very widely read. I read extensively as a child. I developed visual imagination, and then, you know, my college years, I, you know, psychedelics changed my major from, you know, being a physics major to being a psychology and anthropology major. It sort of, hmm. you know, took me into a domain that I thought was demanding, and some of that use sort of corresponded with the period of taking comparative religion and anthropology religion classes and. Way back then it was like obvious to me that you know psychedelics had to be seen as a central feature of the evolution of shamanism and and human religious impulses. So along the way, you know, from you know these accidental traumas and altered states through the psychedelics, I think that I was sort of you know guided into a domain that I just felt compelled to try to make sense of in some terms, other than these are just hallucinations. And so from my earliest experiences with psychedelics. I mean, I was going cross over to the the medical school libraries, trying to figure out what the heck's going on. Why do psychedelics produce these effects? You know, how, how can we understand, you know, traditional accounts of, you know, visionary experiences in terms of the neurophysiology of, you know, LSD or other psychedelics effects upon our brains. And so, you know, for whatever reason, from the beginning, I mean, I didn't view this as a as a spiritual path as much as I viewed it as a, a path of discovery of trying to understand the scientific basis for traditional visionary experiences and shamanism and ultimately inspired religions. So along the way, I think some of the things that really, you know, helped me see that, uh, I read a book by uh, Charles Laughlin and Eugene d'Aquili called... Uh, uh, brain symbol and experience and they lay out what is a, a neurophenomenological paradigm um, Charlie and I for a little bit on just how we should interpret neurophenomenology but uh, you know he sort of saw it as being uh, a set of spiritual experiences that derive from the way our brains function and I've kind of taken that more into a, a phenomenological exper- experiential domain in which I try to understand the uh, phenomenal nature of experiences, the structure of experiences in terms of how the brain operates or increasingly perhaps in terms of how brain systems are de-afferentiated, taken offline. So, for instance, I think that we can explain a lot about mystical experiences simply in terms of certain brain systems being habituated or... Just differentiated they're taken offline and so you know we can have different kinds of experiences based upon what brain systems are left and so along the way i've just gotten a lot of different kinds of direct and indirect confirmatory you know findings that show yeah a lot of what we attribute to mysticism and altered states of consciousness and shamanism and mediumship really can be understood in terms of some of the diverse ways in which our brain can function are perhaps in some cases dysfunction. But I think rather than dysfunction, it's just not functioning. And that's why, for instance, we have experiences like the void experience of mysticism. I think it's very clear. If you look at mystical accounts, they talk about, okay, you quit paying attention to the sense symptoms. You quit paying attention to your senses. You quit paying attention to emotions. You know, you sort of retract all of these different aspects of the mind And when they're no longer functioning, well, there's nothing left. There's your void.
0: Mm -hmm. I liked your distinction here of introverted and extroverted mysticism. I I appreciate that distinction because it it, it situates, again, with cross-cultural analysis. I had a a person I'm working with yesterday who was, uh, because of the kind of Judeo-Christian system that she grew up in, she was looking, as often we do, as Westerners looking at Eastern philosophy, and the idea of non-attachment was interpreted as some kind of nihilism, and I, I kind of urge her not to take a Westerner's view of emptiness and nothingness, and, um, because we so often do that. It, it's like devoid of meaning in life. We go down a rabbit trail there. But yeah, uh, I, I really appreciate that distinction to go back in your history for a second you said you were using psychedelics what were you using when you were young
1: well when i went to college i mean who knows for sure right, right. <laughs> lsd for a while and then psilocybin more regularly and then eventually uh san pedro cactus yeah. um, and then eventually ayahuasca and along the way a, a number of different kinds of designer psychedelics but mostly it was been i'd say you know psilocybin ayahuasca lsd
0: did you have a, a kind of religious practice around that then or was it just jumping into chaos
1: well i mean for probably since the very beginning i've had a meditative practice around psychedelics i think i discovered personally you know in my very first year of using them that you just went out and partied i'd end up with a headache and exhaustion you know mm-hmm. and i somehow along the way discovered that if i meditated that i had much clearer experiences and i felt a lot better afterwards um, and that may be the roots of one of my uh anomalies as a, a psychonaut and that is i really don't have visions i don't have visual experiences i had some early on i mean i understand things you know i i quote unquote, you know, perceive things, but I don't have any kind of classic, you know, psychedelic experiences when I use these substances for the most part. And, um, exactly why it's not clear, but I you know, wonder sometimes if it might have had to do with my Buddhist orientations early on in which they argue, you know, the, the visions are there on the path to enlightenment, but they're not the enlightenment. They're the distraction. Right. But for some reason I don't hallucinate, you know, and, uh, I'm also have a tendency to go into black voids and come back out with, you know, nothing or virtually nothing, a one liner, you know, about mm-hmm. what happened in the last 20 minutes.
0: Well, so did, when you got into college, you have a little more, um, process you you were, you were exploring it academically. You were looking at how these anthropology, anthropology, psychology, evolution, physiology may have some, uh, insight for what's happening when we take these substances and you were certainly seeing it in our history amongst shaman what did you were you working with a shaman did you get exposure to that what was going on there
1: well you know probably the only time that i would say that i really had contact with someone that in my mind would constitute a shaman uh was when i was in a woe de jimenez in oaxaca went with a group of people from the bay area we visited with maria sabina and uh I, I did a session one of those nights with another local, you know, Sabia wise woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other than that, I mean, I really haven't had a, a shamanic formation. I spent a few years, you know, doing some of the, the Horner methods kind of stuff. And we had a, a group of people who met regularly. Um, but my, my my formation has been more, you know, at the intellectual level. I would not present myself as a shaman, you know, right. in large part because I have a specific understanding of what it is. But you know, also I, I don't I don't practice what shamans practice for the most part, including I don't, I don't heal. So along the way, I've had a, a lot of intellectual influences, in part, you know, the cross cultural understandings that you'll want to touch on a little later. Yeah. Uh,
0: so then, to go back to something you said. My you've noted in the beginning of your book that you're walking this line between not wanting to reduce to uh, materialistic presuppositions or to mental presuppositions uh, in your metaphysical worldview. So the, you're saying that the neurophenomenological perspective is really kind of walking that line of the middle path and, and not making reductions, although Anytime, I think, you get somebody in the religions uh, drawing the line between uh, subjective experience and what they would call mental cor- or um, neural correlates of consciousness, there, there seems to be some kind of reduction. And so I, I, you, you did a good job navigating that territory, and I wonder if you just speak to that, that what you're seeing in kind of modern sciences, modern psychology... Um, the ways in which we're relating to religion and spirituality and science, that's a lobbed ball I'm just throwing at you.
1: Well, I, I think that there's an important distinction between the phenomenology, what it is that you experience, and what's really there. And, you know, I think one, one useful metaphor is the rainbow. I mean, you and I can both agree that there's a rainbow over there, but the physicists will tell us there's not a rainbow there. Mm-hmm. Okay, that this phenomenal appearance has to do with properties of our visual system and light refraction, etc. So we have to distinguish between what we experience and what causes the experiences. And I think that that's part of, of my approach. And I think I make it a, a little more subtle. I, I like a, a metaphor from Gregory Bateson, in which he sort of compared the, the human brain mind system to a television set and you know you can take apart the television set and never find the programming right so the television set is there as a, a medium for transmitting information at the same time you know how you tune your television set depends upon what you get so i, I kind of see my approach is trying to understand what it is that we have to tune about the brain in order to get the signal and i i think that the idea that we get signals that come from places that other than the brain is, is well accepted, although it's normally thought that these are just through sensory mechanisms. Yeah. But I, I think that there are quasi-sensory, you know, parasensory, extrasensory mechanisms that can also provide information for us. And so my approach has been to understand you know, how it is that the brain functions when we have these kinds of experiences. And you know, the, the neurophenomenological perspective tries to emphasize that there are aspects of the structure of the experiences that have to do with the the systems of the brain that are operating or not operating. Uh, But once again, you can sort of reduce that to a a receiver issue. It's once again, how the receiver is functioning. Personally, you know, when we come down to trying to understand this phenomenological experience of the spirit world, I am very neurologically oriented in the sense that I think that we are wired to experience spirits. And perhaps I'll elaborate upon that later, but I think the basic structure of our brain leads us to perceive spirits as sort of an extension of the basic structure of our brain for perceiving humans. So I take the phenomenological experiences as real. They are products of our brain plus something else. Uh, But when it comes to the ontological argument, what are they ultimately really representing? You know, I'm not as sure. I spent some time, you know, engaged in the field of parapsychology, and it's clear that, you know, even people who firmly believed in what they called the survival hypothesis, were not able to produce convincing results of the survival of an autonomous, willful entity after death. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, there's lots of, you know, mediumistic studies done under relatively well-controlled conditions that lead us to the conclusion that there's something going on here. But I don't think that, you know, we have to, you know, assume that there are these autonomous human-like entities out there, you know, doing things to produce the kinds of phenomena that we see in, in psychical research. So, at, at the end of, of the day, I'm sort of a, a wavering agnostic. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not absolutely sure what's out there, but, you know, I'll also say that I probably wouldn't have made it to the to today if there hadn't been something out there helping me <laughs> along the way.
0: So we could say that there's something there, there, um, but the way that we experience it may not match what is there.
1: Exactly. I mean, you know, I think that the human sensory apparatus is capable of processing somewhere between 1% to 5% of the information field that's available to science you know we are very ineffective receivers you know and, and if you have a pet you know you know very well they respond to things that you don't perceive you know and then they, they, later you may figure out what it is so you know we're not very effective sensory processors and you know, we may rely upon a lot of information that gets transformed through other kinds of mediums into what we can then interpret it as a spiritual world but I think it's also clear that you know, much of what people experience as a spiritual world has to be understood as a, a product of not only their own experience and their own brain, but perhaps the brains and experiences of other people. I, mm. I think that you know the, the whole notion of you know, telepathically induced kinds of experiences have to be considered. I think we have to consider that possibility that clairvoyance may be reading somebody else's brain rather than your own in some cases. Uh, but, I mean, that's not going to make the whole field any clearer when we begin to rely upon parapsychological explanations. But I think what they showed to be the case has to be taken seriously, that our, our brains can, in fact, our brain-mind, produce external fields that can influence others.
0: Would you say more about that? So I, I I'm holding on to this piece about... Um, what you said beyond our sensory system, and I, I want you to put some meat on that bone about what is our sensory system? Let's really kind of go slowly and like define this for people who may, not, uh, have, may have only taken Neuropsych 101 or not. You know, what is our sensory system, and then what are the limitations of that sensory system that predispose us to experience extrasensory experiences?
1: Well, I mean, typically our sensory systems are thought to begin primarily with the visual, which we rely upon mostly, the tactile, which we don't pay much attention to, you know, the auditory, you know, the olfactory, and the taste. I mean, you know, then we can talk about senses of balance and things like this. But normally, we think about the senses as this information coming into us from the external world. Of course, you know, when we close our eyes, and all of a sudden, we have a whole range of of visual kinds of experiences that can include somatic elements that don't apparently have a source in the external world. Mm -hmm. And and in the context of psychedelic induced experiences, people would say, you know, you can't tell me I'm making that up from memory. I never saw anything like that before. You know, so how how do we begin to explain these things? Well, you know, we have a variety of innate intelligences that may provide certain kinds of, of explanations um, but I think that we also have, you know, a, a lot of different kinds of, you know, physical stimuli, electromagnetic, infrared, ultraviolet, you know, the list goes on. All these energies, they impact our body. You know, we, we don't apparently have sensors for them, but they nonetheless impact our body. Well, how does our body come to, to deal with this? You know. In different ways. And I think, you know, one of the mechanisms through which we, you know, put together this other kind of information system is through what's the most important information system that's normally available to us, the visual system. And what we know from various kinds of clinical studies is that the parts of the brain that operate when you open your eyes and look around in the world and pay attention to things, that's exactly the same visual system that's stimulated when you're on psychedelics. It's not like we have a different visual system for psychedelics than we do for perceiving reality. It's just that under psychedelic visionary experiences, our input is coming from somewhere else. And I think one of the interesting concepts to be brought into here is, is Jung's notion of the collective unconscious and the archetypes. Mm-hmm. This notion that we receive you know, visual constructions that represent some kind of inchoate understanding of something or some situation. And so that could be the mechanisms through which we come to acquire information that's beyond our five normal senses, that somehow our unconscious brain uh, is capable of pulling together information and presenting it as images that we can then study and
0: interpret. And I, I think the important piece subjectively here, or I guess phenomenologically, is that it's those experiences are experienced as other. Well, I mean, in a sense,
1: yes, that's something presented to us. Um, but I, I suppose a, a more mature contemplative may own them and realize that they come out of some of the inquate structures of, of the brain-mind, the unconscious.
0: Yeah, because you would have to have an orientation that makes space for that or has a, a precondition that would lead you to um, invite that in in a different way than just an utter rejection of even the possibility that we are a multiplicity. Right. Um. So you're, you mentioned earlier about the paranormal, and while that may be later in our conversation, I just want to plant these seeds also this is the road you're traveling to get to the paranormal is that fair to say
1: well i mean personally i i don't normally think of myself as someone in pursuit of the paranormal uh, <laughs> <laughs> i mean I, I suppose that you know i i should qualify that by saying well yeah I, I do use psychedelics to get answers to questions uh so i mean but that doesn't necessarily imply that i'm looking for a a paranormal source of the information.
0: What if we call it supernatural?
1: Well, you know, I, I, I'll I sort of flip this and <laughs> I'll, I'll say that, you know, when when I first started studying transpersonal psychology and, you know, the idea of transpersonal psychology is it's, it's some aspect that goes beyond ourselves and beyond, you know, our personhood. And I was immediately led to the notion, no, this is our own, innate, unconscious potentials that we externalize. Uh So I think, you know, perhaps rather than, you know, the pursuit of some, you know, paranormal phenomena, I'm more in pursuit of integrating the potentials that I already believe that my brain mind has.
0: Yeah, I guess you said it earlier, the the, person experiences something as real And that brings up uh, the notion of what is real. And this, I think, is where we get into a real split in the academy, is that if we're going to define real by objective consensus, measurable, versus real as I'm having the experience of something, uh, there are interesting distinctions that influence our religious orientation, our cultural orientations, our economic and political, and so on and so forth. Um, Is that fair to say?
1: Well, I mean, I I think that there is a a lot of naive materialism. I I think that neuroscience, you know, would firmly, you know, reject any simplistic notion about perceiving an objective reality back to, we only get one to 5% of the information that's out there anyway. Right. How can that be objective? You know, and I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, confirmation biases and, you know, the, the construction of perception that, you know, happens through socialization. I think that, you know, we really don't have any basis to, you know, agree that there's a scientific basis for materialism. I mean, the very forms of evidence that we use for materialism are idealist forms of evidence. They're models created in our brain. I think that contemporary neuroscience (laughs) is very clear, you know. We see the models that we have learned, you know. What's out there may influence the models, but our perception is, is based upon models that are you know in, in some sense they're, they're collective mediated by language you know created by cumulative experience you know reflecting our own particular you know biases and expectations mm-hmm. uh and that you know on top of all the, the limited physical information we have we have all of these acquired biases that give us a model of reality um i, I like the term that charles laughlin used in his book on brain symbol experience a cognized reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what we see. We see, we have a cognition. All we ever see is the map. You know, we don't ever see reality. Anybody that thinks we see reality is, you know, too naive to recognize what neuroscience tells us about perception, which is to say it's a highly limited filtered construction.
0: So when you go at psychedelics, for example, and this may be too reductive, but do you imagine what you're seeing is a is a clearer understanding of reality out there, or a clearer, clearer, unfiltered version of reality in here, or both?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think that the psychedelics can help us get clearer understandings of what's out there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. You know. Um, in a lot of different ways. For instance, I mean, I think many people who have used psychedelics, you know, start to experience all kinds of non-hallucinatory visual phenomena that have to do with the structure of the eye, as well as as probably seeing, you know, micro agglomerations of material in the air. I mean, I think that there's lots of different visual phenomena that can be seen once you dishabituate the visual system um you know so for instance i mean like a lot of times you know we squint to get rid of the glare from lights you know but i mean you know that's just changing the information that's coming in the glare is really there there really is a diffuse visual signal out there you know the light doesn't just stay on some you know a cone coming out of the headlights of an oncoming car i mean there, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of things that are out there that we try to get get away from so that we don't you know, have this. You know more fuzzy reality but reality is fuzzy um but i think that you know it, it can help us understand external reality uh, for instance one time i you know was trying to figure out how to deal with a problem with my neighbor and came to the very clear realization that he wasn't the problem it was his wife you know, that, that's who i needed to deal with you know so it helped me understand something external interpersonal when i you know I don't have a lot of internal visual experiences, um, but when I do, I really feel like there's something that, you know, is a kind of, once again, a a symbolic representation to be understood and deconstructed and, you know, understood in terms of its message, its content, which may not be apparent. Uh, I think that, you know, the internal experiences have to be, you know, viewed at a number of different levels, obviously, because, people are highly variable in terms of what their experiences are. In my case, I've come to you know, life-changing decisions based upon things that I have understood while on psychedelics, but mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily see something as a, something visual. It was more you know, intuitions coming to a really concrete kind of sense of something I need to understand.
0: Well, and you spent a lot of time, if we're sticking with this kind of physiological landscape for a little bit, you spent a lot of time offering up definitions of and directions for exploring symbols and what a symbol is from the perspective of the neural structure. Could, could you speak about that? Because I really enjoyed your paleo or reptilian, paleo-mammalian, and mammalian distinctions of the brain. And maybe people don't know these, so I would love mm-hmm. to hear more about that.
1: Yeah. Well, first I'll say, you know, it was a model that was originated by the neurologist, Paul McLean called the triune brain. And he proposed that, you know, we had three relatively autonomous brain systems, uh, an ancient reptilian brain, primarily mediating, you know, behavior and some basic, you know, interpersonal dynamics. And then a mammalian brain that was really concerned with emotions and social relations. And then uh, a a neo-mammalian frontal brain which was largely just a hard drive located on top of all these other things that served as an area to put various programs. Uh, I'll just, I'll say, you know, in defense of McLean, people say, oh, well, McLean was wrong. And then they'll point to some little thing about, you know, an amphibian, you know, or they'll point to something that a bird doesn't exactly fit in there. Well, we don't have a bird brain, although maybe the people that point to the bird brains do. But the notion is that I think in spite of any, you know, small and perhaps in some ways significant omissions from McLean's model it's clear we have a behavioral brain an emotional brain and more of a, a cognitive brain and these kinds of brains function uh, in some ways relatively autonomously uh, For instance you know you can you know be driving to work for the you know 15,000th time and all of a sudden you're there and it's like well where was I the last 10 minutes Well you know you were thinking about something else Mm -hmm. Your body took over and it doesn't require, you know, the conscious thinking mind to keep on driving the car. Um, You know, a lot of times we're trying to focus on work and, you know, our emotional problems keep coming up and we keep thinking about our family dynamics or interpersonal Mm -hmm. relations Mm -hmm. or someone we're having conflict with. And we don't want to, but, you know, that's what the emotional brain wants to do. And it overrides what, you know, the frontal brain wants to do. So I think having this model of these three relatively independent brain systems then opens up a lot of territory for understanding the dynamics of healing, the effects of ritual, you know, the, the roles of symbols and, and ultimately leads us to recognition that we require a more complex understanding of symbols than is part of, you know, contemporary philosophy and cognitive science that our brains are capable of, of symbolizing at levels that, preceded the verbal capacity by millions of years. I mean, we have been mimetic thinkers for at least a million and a half years. Uh, We have been visual thinkers probably longer than that. We have other systems of information in which information can be presented to the conscious mind that doesn't involve language or spoken word. And I think a lot of the work of shamanism is happening at these, you know, more inchoate nonverbal levels levels at which the interpersonal dynamic, the, the music, the dance, the drama, the enactment, the belief systems are all being compellingly integrated in ways that tell us something that we understand that's not manifested in the written
0: word. It's like a bottom-up processor. So the symbol... You have an interesting way of relating to the symbol. Would you speak about what a symbol is and how we can kind of broaden our understanding of that?
1: Well, I'm not going to be real sophisticated here. I'm going to to (laughs) go go down to a basic level. And um, Charles Laughlin, in his book about brain symbol experience, I think makes a compelling argument that all of human perception is at some level symbolic. That a symbol is something that's, stands for, provides information about something else. And the idea here is that even our basic, you know, understanding of what's around us in the world is largely a symbolically mediated process. I mean, when when you open your eyes and look at what's in front of you, it's not this dark brown mass. you know, it's a dresser drawer with some handles on it and a bunch of junk on top. I mean, we immediately take whatever is in perception as a system of designated items that have names and relationships. I think that what meditation tries to get us to do is to begin to suspend that automatic labeling system, Mm -hmm. suspending our prior, suspending the beliefs, suspending the, the, the network of words and concepts that mediates our relationship to reality. But I think in this very fundamental sense, we have to entertain that there are many different forms of symbols and that the things that you see in dreams are symbols, and that the things that you see in the world around you are symbols, unless you're an advanced meditator or severely mentally incapacitated, no longer capable of imposing mm-hmm. that symbolic network onto your perceptions of
0: reality. That's it. Those are interesting distinctions on the bookends here. Uh, either tr- truly affected from a physiological perspective or very enhanced as a meditator, that that almost that both of those things dislocate the typical modes of behavior for the brain. And that puts us in relationship with something mysterious that is mystical in nature.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, one of the classic features of mystical experience is that it's ineffable. Yeah. Which If you look at the dictionary definition, it means incapable of being expressed in words. I mean, that should be a really clear indication that the levels of the brain that are operating to produce those perceptions are inferior to those levels of the brain that produce verbal descriptions. That in essence, a certain part of the brain has been taken offline.
0: You talk a lot about music in this space, music, ritual, and a kind of religious formation, and you're, it's interesting because you're you're putting together, if if I may, you're, you're putting together art and ex- different forms of expression like dance and song and chanting, not maybe not so much chanting, but dance, music, um, as these precursors to language. To, Certainly, they uh,
1: exist, they existed long before language emerged. Mm-hmm. Um, what we can infer from the archaeological record is that the capacity for mimesis, behavioral imitation, was present in our species well over a million years ago. We know this because people basically made identical hand axes, use exactly the same processes for hundreds of thousands of years. They just basically imitatively copied what another person did, did it to perfection. So once we accept that, then we can try to expand upon this notion of mimesis, which is one of our innate intelligences, which is a, a suite of capabilities that include capacities for singing, um, chanting, emotional sound expressions, dance, um, enactment, you know, sort of, you know, dramatic expression of what we feel or have seen, et etc., and so this capacity emerged, you know, probably a million and a half years ago, as a, a social communication system uh, that allowed, you know, humans to, you know, share information and to integrate their communities through the varied effects of these mimetic capacities. So I see this as really being a core aspect of shamanism. I think the evolution of the mimetic capacity is what clearly separated our Know, shamanic precursors from whatever were the hominid rituals that existed before.
0: That there were these charismatic figures that kind of took up the mantle of leading uh, these spaces. And we would call that, to, we say, uh, relating with the unseen world. That these you know, these mean, were they, figures. Sorry.
1: Well, I mean, I, I don't necessarily you know presume that their intention was to relate to the unseen world <laughs> in the sense of spirits uh, they may have been really intending to relate to the unseen world as in competing groups you know marauding mm-hmm. predators mm-hmm. felines that are checking your group out um, you know <laughs> evolutionary anthropologists talk about you know conspicuous displays conspicuous manifestations costly displays behaviors that animals exhibit that call a lot of attention to themselves, but which serve as signaling devices that communicate both to members of one's own group, one's own excessive fitness, and simultaneously communicate to predators one's excessive fitness and awareness. So a good example would be you know, certain kind of desert rats that when they see a predator, they start jumping up and down. You know, making a lot of noise, squeaking, but jumping up and down on their back legs, kind of dancing. You might say, if you see a predator, why would you call attention to yourself? Well, because as soon as a predator looks at you, first the predator sees, this person knows I'm here, this animal knows I'm here, they're looking at me, and they're showing excessive fitness. They're probably going to be able to get away before I can ever catch them, so mm. I should look for something else. And of course, the same time the manifestation alerts one's own kin and group members that there's a predator present. So these conspicuous displays I see as being one of the cores of shamanism that was sort of an extension of what was the ritualization forms found among chimpanzees and other great apes.
0: Yeah, do you hear that? I I tend to want to... I guess I'm I'm a product of part of this religious orientation, which is something I want to talk about later. Is our kind of current religious orientation, which, after doing all this process, I realize that our current religious understanding is very current from the kind of currents of our history, and we we tend to take literally these figures that uh, that we see. So there, there seems to be, and I want to try this out and see where we go, but there seems to be a point where we kind of got unhooked from a more animistic, nature-centered tradition, and the the dualistic split happened, and and that's you you made a really interesting. I'm going to fumble around for a second. You made a really interesting comment about evolution, and that sometimes these are my words, sometimes evolutionary trails or roads aren't good you know they're not necessarily good from a uh, i don't even know what that means necessarily but i i think you're not you're saying like god's not always right um but but let's talk about this a little bit like evolution as it relates to the structures of our un, our religious experience and institutions
1: well i think the first thing we need to make clear is that evolution doesn't mean that things are getting better Right. And some long term trajectory it's just what works right now. Mm -hmm. What's the best adaptation now that can be made based upon variation in the species and what may be good at one point in time may not be good at a later point in time. So in in that sense, we have a, a whole evolutionary history that was adaptive in the past that may not be adaptive now, for instance, a preference for sweets when there was hardly any sweets around wanting to gobble up all the sweets you could, when you found them was a good strategy because they weren't going to be there tomorrow. You know, and that led to these acquired preferences for sweets, probably based upon acquired preferences for the sweetness of mother's milk. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this doesn't have the same overall effect when there's an unlimited amount of sugar available. So we have problem of our evolutionary heritage that, we have to overcome in terms of trying to make adaptations to new circumstances. And when we put this in the context of religion, um, I think that I can make a clear argument that the evolution of shamanism was the extension of capacities that were at least minimally present in our hominid ancestors and manifested in the kinds of things that chimpanzees do as group ritualizations. These are these collective nighttime encounters of the whole group that involve you know conspicuous displays dancing and drumming and vocalizations and those kinds of group protection and group integration processes i think were the platform from which shamanism emerged with the addition of the mimetic suite altered states of consciousness effects of psychedelics Um, and that this functioned very well when societies were small scale Um, And the societies, for the most part, stayed small scale until the emergence of agriculture. With the emergence of agriculture, all of a sudden, you don't have to be wandering from place to place. You don't have to be optimizing your daily foraging paths by breaking into small groups. You don't have to be constantly aware of animals and whether they're threats or or signs or signals of other things going on. And now in sedentary societies, a whole different dynamic emerges. And I would say that you know, the big shift there was from a set of practices that were designed to integrate our unconscious brain and mind through altered states, through ritual, typical of shamanism, to a, a new system in which the most important thing was tradition. Um, and that tradition in agricultural societies, I think, began basically with agricultural traditions. How do you plant seeds? I mean, if if you're relying upon nature and, you know, water from nature, rainfall to plant seeds, your margin of error is very small. You know, plant your seeds, you know, two weeks too early, they die in the ground, you know. Mm -hmm. Plant them two or three weeks too late, you know, they may get washed away by the heavy rains, you know, rather than already have their roots set. So you need to have tradition to tell you how to do this. And if you look at, Pre-modern societies, you'll see that the primary functions of priests was managing the agricultural ritual. Now we get a little, you know, distorted views of priests today because what most religious studies people look at are what we would call, you know, monotheistic ecclesiastic ecclesiastical religions that were an evolutionary form that emerged in complex societies with private property and a variety of other features of you know, social dynamics that needed to be managed by a common god who could see everything and keep control of our behavior at some level. So the, the forms that religions have taken, we can say, has evolved. But you know, is the modern form better than you know, the shamanic form? Well, it's, it's not a fair question. You know, the modern form wouldn't have been useful in a shamanic culture, hunter-gatherer society. Conversely, I think the shamanic form has difficulties being effective as a social integrator Because it's based upon a group of people that can get together and all relate to one another in a ritual context. I mean, there's, you know, the drum only carries so far. There's only so many people that can crowd around the campfire. I think, you know, modern raves may be an effort to recapture some of that essence. But notably, you know, they've got amplified sound so that everybody can hear Mm -hmm. So the form that religion takes, I think, has been something very related to the nature of society. Uh, and, you know, when, you know, hunting was the most important subsistence practice, then the most important, you know, form of religion was the animal-based shaman with the animal identities and animal powers. We moved to agricultural societies, then it's our ancestors and their knowledge of tradition and how to do things that becomes more important. You know, we come to more complex kind of chiefdoms. You know, the ancestor system may persist, but now the ancestor gods become the gods of the whole society, and eventually it's a monotheistic system that appears to be objective, not tied to kinship or personal relations, and it's an objective system of rules that applies to everybody. So in that sense, we can see religious forms really as reflecting what it is that their ideology and practice Enables the society to manage in terms of, you know, uh, uh, integrating a wide range of people.
0: For anybody that has their mind blown right now listening to that, this is one of the reasons why I've been looking forward to talking to you, Michael. That, that to to see our trends and the thing that I that I come up against here is it doesn't mean that the images or the symbols that are used by any tradition are are false, not real, or unjustified, worthless. And I think that's what a lot of people are scared about, is that they, they've invested so much in a particular system that all of a sudden they've got to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I think what this perspective teaches us is that, no, I mean, really any system that you're in the images and symbols point to something beyond what that system can possibly represent so the problem then becomes when we take the images of any particular tradition literally and imagine that there and that that human morality thing starts and we start to say well this is right and you're wrong and do some horrible things in the name of religion but but hearing this to me is expansive and opening and um, it it really uh, provides an opportunity to dig deeper in, in any system that, uh, that one might be in.
1: And well, I think one of the important things to use that interpretive framework for religious symbols and beliefs is that you know, they are features that help the system function. And in that sense, they have a, a systemic truth in that they help the system maintain a certain kind of coherence. And they can be, you know, right and moral for exactly those same reasons. It's the maintenance of society, as Durkheim mm-hmm. would have put it. Uh, but clearly, when, you know, social circumstances, ecological circumstances change, the ability of those symbols to maintain the system may be compromised. And, you know, it's represented in the notion that, you know, the demons and devils were the gods of old. You know? <laughs> one or, time, or of those maybe, guys. are the out group right yeah you know so i mean in in a sense you know there's to me there's a an interesting dynamic of of religious evolution in that you know in the shamanic context there was beliefs that shamans were powerful in their societies but that they were other groups thought they were even more powerful and that the shamanic ritual dynamic was normally inclusive whoever could hear the drum could come you know and it was mandatory. Everybody came from the local group. you know. But then eventually we get to a level at which the integration of groups is sort of supplanted by the separation of groups. I mean, there was a, a long period of human evolutionary history in which the most important thing was maintaining relationships with other groups of people that weren't related to you to avoid genetic bottlenecks, inbreeding. And of course, these other groups were essential for survival in times of resource scarcity, famine, whatever. You had to have somebody else that you could call upon. And so in that sense, the shamanic system was open and inclusive. But once we get to ancestor religions, where they're defined in terms of descendants from a common founder, all of a sudden they become exclusive organizations. You Mm -hmm. you have to be a member of our kinship club to join. And when it gets to the level of chiefdoms, the same dynamic is, is basically operable in the sense that, you know, you have to join our system, but, it, but it's normally, you know, a kind of, you know, sort of patriotic, you know, us against them dynamic, which, of course, we see in the modern religions, the monotheistic yeah. religions, you know, I mean, with few exceptions, they are not open and accepting of other religions. It's our way or you're going to hell so religions have moved from the system that was inclusively integrated into systems that were sort of in-group, out-group di- differentiations and, and, and even in-group versus out-group morality. I mean, if you look at what religious systems often do is like, there's a certain set of rules for how you have to treat members of our community, but you can kill, rape, maim and steal from people of other communities. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is sort of the the dynamic I think the world's caught in today where we've taken what could arguably be considered one of the most important cultural inventions in human evolution, religion, and it's sort of stymied our effort to be more inclusive. It's creating boundaries between groups of people which have certain advantages for the in-group dynamic, but it's dysfunctional when we look at it in the broader sense of the relationship between the group and the greater societal context. Because no social group lives in social isolation. Yeah. We're all in, in inevitably intermeshed in these interdependent societies.
0: And not only that, we, we get crazy whenever we're isolated. When any, any individual um, constituent of a system behaves in really weird ways when it's isolated. You know, from yeah. our babies to a blood cell,
1: right? Um, we're interdependent all the
0: way, all the way up in all the way. Yeah, all the way. Up. So you said something really interesting about the maintenance of society, and I noticed that people people look at that with contempt. There's like, oh, God was a manifestation of the need to control, and then then of course there are agents out there that will take these dynamics and use them for their own, at times nefarious, sometimes unconscious, purposes, um, gaining money, gaining power, gaining gaining status. But then there are other people who are going to use these principles that are, as you're saying, neurologically, mentally structured in our consciousness as a way to bring about healing and connection and uh, socially advantageous interactions. So we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. I mean, we do need some way of maintaining society. Because let's just run the experiment and see what happens, and it doesn't go very well.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I've seen a meme lately that was something to the effect, you know, you know, if you need, you know, a moral system to be a good person, you know, you don't need morals, you need empathy. You know, it's just yeah, You and know, it's so. I guess that there's a sense in which, you know, we no longer depend upon the law of God. We've got the law of the land. But but what is it that, you know, the religious participation gives us? And I think, as you were just pointing out, you know, the human sense of belonging is very important. Uh, And one of your questions was about, you know, the emergence of religion and what Jane Goodall has to say. Well, Barbara King, you know, another primatologist says, you know, religion begins with a sense of belonging our, our group consciousness and our, our group well-being our individual well-being as a function of group well-being and you know we are we are the most dependent of all primates you know we can't survive without a social system you know we totally dependent upon the well-being of the collectivity for our individual personal well-being yes. yeah and in, in, in that sense, you know, religion has been an effective tool under a variety of circumstances for providing that sense of well-being and for being able to you know, use symbols to exact a variety of emotional dynamics related to submissiveness and bonding and the sense of well-being and psychoneuroimmunological responses yeah. and things like this. Because the real question is you know, what can we do today to maintain that kind of social dynamic, when we live in societies in which we have such pluralism, divergent religions, and you know the inability to form effective communities, I've been reading a book by Robin Dunbar about how religion evolved, and uh, you know he does a variety of contemporary analyses that suggest you know I think religious groups you know function pretty well up into about 150 to 250 members. Beyond that, a church, a congregation has a lot of trouble maintaining coherence and stability if there's not some higher level political structure that keeps it functioning across time, that religion really may have evolved in order to ideally bond relatively small groups of people. So, you know, that sort of suggests that maybe we, you know, won't be able to find some universal religion. Maybe we won't be able to find some universal way of all of us coming together under the same you know blanket of belief i have a hypothesis about how we might do that but it, you know it takes us off into some pretty radical territory
0: why do i want to go there go there
1: <laughs> well you know if, if you look at religious traditions around the world almost all of them have ancient and theogenic elements yeah. i mean i think you know there's a, a lot of very well-researched you know, documentation about the roles of entheogens and the Greeks, yep. uh, the spread of various cults from Eleusius to Mithras, you know, during the Christian formative period. That there's, you know, according to John Allegro, you know, it was early Amanita cults that mm-hmm. were the foundation of Christianity. And Jerry Brown has a book out about, you know, psychedelic uh, gospels in which he shows the presence of psychedelic mushrooms and art and architecture and sculptures across hundreds thousand one of the thousand years they turn to buddhism i mean i think there's a good argument to be made that buddhism has in theogenic roots uh mike crowley has a book out about psychedelic buddhism you know, i've written a few articles recently book reviews about you know, elements of psychedelics in buddhism go to hinduism uh you know the so-called hindu religion which i think is a kind of a constructed idea but if you look at its roots i mean back to the early brahmin practices i mean soma was the sacrament and you know mm. many experts think soma was amanita muscaria that later was substituted when you no longer could get amanita and that eventually by the period of shiva it was salasabi Um curiously there are major temple structures in india that have mushrooms on the threshold Send people out there. I have two articles that can be obtained through ResearchGate. But we've looked at, you know, what could these be besides mushrooms? They don't represent any other kind of plant. You know, why are they on the thresholds leading to the sanctuaries of the temples of Kajuraho? And even more significantly, why is nobody talking about this? Yeah, you know,
0: that's right. Totally.
1: you You go back into Judaism. Uh, I did a special issue of the Journal of Psychedelic Studies in uh, 2019. We have like about a dozen articles in there that deal with entheogenic roots in religion. And Judaism has lots of very clear Mm -hmm. findings that they were using drugs. Cannabis, probably other things that were more LSD-like, ergots. Um, The manna was probably, you know, some kind of psychoactive mushroom. I mean, you just go from religion to religion, to religion, to religion. And if you want to look for the early evidence, psychedelics were there. This may be our path forward as a species in terms of religion. We can all have our own psychedelic religion, yeah. our own psychedelic mushroom cult. And that this will undoubtedly, you know, promote a variety of different kinds of developmental trajectories. Uh, we have to recognize that just because you do mushrooms doesn't mean you become a good person. LSD right. doesn't necessarily make you spiritual. There's a lot of right-wing groups out there that bond over the use of LSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you know what the studies at John Hopkins University have shown that given the right set and setting, psilocybin reliably induces the most powerful exper- uh, spiritual experiences of people's lives in 80 or 90% of the cases. I mean, there is an intrinsic capacity of psilocybin to induce mystical experiences, something which I would propose very few religious people have ever had. So if we want to buy into the argument that having mystical experiences are going to make us better people for ourselves, for our groups, for humanity, I mean, there's no better tool for doing that than psilocybin or similar, you know, synthetic psychedelics. And this may in fact promote a a major religious revolution. Tom Roberts says, you know, the, the, the reformation was nothing compared to what the psychedelic reformation will bring, that this is going to enable us to have direct spiritual experiences to you know, experience God as we come to learn and know him or her through our traditions, as well as something far beyond what our traditions have told us. And this may be the key to ultimately creating a more inclusive religious system on the planet, one that accepts and recognizes the importance of entheogens and recognizes that everybody may have their own paths, symbols, practices to get there.
0: Would you go so far as to say that the dogma, orientation, perspective, practice of any particular religious institution is interdependent on the culture in which it was formed?
1: Well, it should go without saying. Of course. So
0: what we can do d- deeper is to uh, is to um, and that um, what I'm curious is hearing what this modern day understanding of religion, as we sit on the verge and we're prob- we're pretty far into it but i just saw the other day that we've gone from 5 years where uh, many people that are experts in the kind of fda territory would say 5 years until psychedelic assisted therapies but now it's 2 years so we're we're on the verge of seeing radical transformation but with that said what does your expertise reveal to us about our current modern western religious orientation and our the culture in which we're in
1: well i I think it's back to what i said early on you know the last thing the bishop wants to hear is that there's a saint in the parish (laughs) (laughs) religions are very tied to their dogmatic top-down control and, you know, the church around the Catholic Church around the world has, you know, gone through great efforts to try to, you know, contain and restrain, you know, popular Catholicism, you know, pilgrimages, sacred spots, you know, saints that heal, this kind of thing. Uh, you know, it, it's hard for me to see how the major world religions are going to be able to, you know, make a, a, a quick change to being in theogenic religions. But there's movements around. Uh, Ligare. Dot com is now a consortium of Christian and Jewish, you know, pastors, rabbis that are promoting the use of entheogens as tools for spiritual development. How do you spell uh, that? L-I-G-A-R-E dot org, dot org. Our, our, good. Look below. And, I mean, if you if you've built, Google psychedelic chaplaincy, you know, Google psychedelic religions. This is sprouting up around the place. But, you know, will, you know, the Pope endorse it? You know, I wish, but, <laughs> you know, and on the other hand, you know, it's still possible that entheogenic mushroom traditions are still present among the ecclesiastical elite of the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine that, you know, Hindus that pay any attention at all to their ancient religious traditions and the most wonderful Thing of the past soma don't ask questions about what it was and what it would be like to take it um, it's hard for me i mean it's hard to for me to accept that all of the entheogenic traditions of catholicism were exterminated at the point of the sword right. although yeah. many were i mean there were villages of tens of thousands of people that were all put to the sword because there were presumably mushroom cults there in those villages um but You know the catholic church has been aware of the you know entheogenic hypothesis at least since allegro's famous book Mm. you know uh, the mushroom and the cross so that they would not look back into their own traditions and wonder about this i don't know but you know when we look at the evolution of, of social forms and religion religions apparently became far more elite oriented in their practices And made the separation between the elites and the commoners that often corresponded to a distinction between esoteric traditions and exoteric traditions. So the sacraments and the real knowledge were kept for the elite and the masses were denied it. I mean, this was very clear in the case of the Vedas. The Soma was for the priest, not
0: for commoners. So we've got a Huxley-Leary split here. In the, the sense that for everybody a, versus
1: for
0: Yeah, for the intellectuals versus the for everybody. Put it in the water supply.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to put a major dose in the water supply. You know, <laughs> I yeah. think there's too many people out there that wouldn't know how to deal with it. But you know, what what is the appropriate context for this? I mean, we're having an interesting, you know, ongoing discussion now with legalization of psychedelics in some states of the US. And the question is, you know, how are these substances going to be managed? Uh, You know, it's brought up the whole, you know, concept of medicalization. I mean, is psilocybin something you should only be able to do under the supervision of a doctor? I mean, to me, you know, that's turning the back on 5 million years of human history and prehistory in which we've been using these things constructively, you know, for a lot of reasons. On the other hand, you know, do you want your seven-year-old son to be able to go down and buy psilocybin mushrooms? probably not you know but you know the question of when would be
0: a good age for you to take your son on a psilocybin retreat is something we ought to be discussing yeah and that gets to the to the context if, if you have a tradition in which you're a part and you're initiated and you have rites of passage and you you were kind of brought into it then that seems like a really healthy endeavor but there are all kinds of ways that that we don't I, I think when it, when it comes to taboos like sex and drugs, I think we do a real disservice to each other because, you know, this, our, in, in Texas, I've, I've said this many times before, but there are two abstinence-only counties in Texas, in North Texas, in the Panhandle area, and they have the highest per capita rates of teen pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases, and that in and of itself should be a signal, like an alarm bell for our resistances and our kind of blind um, abstinence-only policies with these taboos, right, that, that scare oh, the no, shit it, it, out of everybody.
1: Must be the devil. You know, must the devil. It must
0: be some demon somewhere. Yes, absolutely. Well, And, and just to, as a funny point of note, it, I've read a lot of, uh, several, I've read several of these Inquisition papers from uh from priests and I mean the devil came from their psyches that's what's so fascinating that we tend not to recognize is that when they're looking at these women doing weird rituals in the moonlight and people taking mushrooms and talking to god and that doesn't match they they project demonic demon worship or devil worship onto these folks and then we get planted in our cultural ethos that those kinds of processes related to the body and pleasure and Alternate states of consciousness are somehow demonic. And we're still living out that mimetic, if you will, that corrupts our perception of nature and reality.
1: Well, let me just throw out something here, back to this Kajuraho, the Kama Sutra temples. I mean, one of the other anomalies, besides that they've got these mushrooms on the thresholds to the sanctuaries, Is that they've got these sculptures of naked women and sexual poses, engaging in sexual acts. Uh, we actually tried to put the title of that section of the paper, you know, Sex and Drugs in Kajuraho, but the editor wouldn't accept it. See, look at that. (laughs) You're censored, man. (laughs) But it's a very interesting phenomenon that, you know, they've got these anomalistic temples that, you know, can't be Brahmin, even though the Brahmins want to claim them, because they got all these women in sexual postures and positions and they got the mushrooms are these two things linked are there is there a reason why they are both on these anomalistic temples so i encourage your listeners to go look i got two papers there on ResearchGate about you know the kama sutra temples and you know and theomycology
0: of india yeah and uh, apparently there's a lot of literature on how the body was the apothecary how sexual fluids and and the body and alternate states of consciousness were all kind of melded together in these uh, temples. So there, there's all kinds of threads and territories that people get in, can get into there. But yeah. at least what we can understand is that there have been core instinctual urges that somehow were corrupted oh. along the line with entire mythologies and narratives written around this separation of what is natural and what is amoral or you know, unnatural, and that traditions are built around these value systems and perpetuate that belief system, and then will kick you out of it if you don't align with that belief system. And therein lies the... I think there's a there's a core religious nature of our psyche, but there's also a, a nature of institutions that at some point unhook... I think your, your comment earlier was really appreciated... Unhook from the in, the um, original symbolic nature of that tradition, and then it becomes a kind of stale dogma that's just reifying itself over and over again. Uh, oh yeah, I. While we're on this thread, I, I think we should open up the conversation about Western medicine and religion and what that concept really means, because I think that you um, you you're, you could probably include the same kind of lens at what western medicine is uh, so what what does that stir up for you western medicine western religion
1: well i mean if you go back to descartes you know he made the deal to you know separate the study of the humans and their body from issues about you know soul and spiritual matters you know, if we take the soul and spiritual matters to primarily be concerned with our psychology and emotions and unconscious dynamics I mean, we threw out a major aspect of what it means to be a human being in the definition of science and consequently medicine. And, and I think that, you know, that is, you know, still part of the problem of Western medicine. Um, I, I think that most people have a, a deep misunderstanding about what Western medicine or biomedicine is really intended to do. And people think, you know, well, Well, they they prove this medicine makes me better. No, no. The FDA does not require that any trials done on drugs show that there's actually going to be an improvement in the health of the patient. The only thing you have to do is show that a drug reduces a symptom. So if you think that high cholesterol causes cardiovascular disease, if you come up with a drug that reduces cholesterol, then it's approved, like the statin drugs, like Lipitor. But what happens when you take Lipitor? Your risk of a cardiovascular event increases. You're more likely to die of a heart attack from the very drug that's supposed to prevent you from that. How can that be the case? Because they never tested the drugs on whether or not they healed people, made them better. They only have to show that that reduces a symptom. And so we have symptomatic medicine. It's also referred to as allopathic medicine. You act against the symptoms. So you got diarrhea. You know, there's a medicine to take to stop your diarrhea. It'll probably make you very sick because if you got diarrhea, you're trying to get the shit out for a good reason. You know, now if you're getting ready to get on an airplane, okay, maybe you want to take it. Right. But, you know, if you don't keep on having diarrhea to expel all those toxins, you're going to get worse and worse. But that to me sort of typifies Western medicine. They're trying to bottle up the shit rather than get rid of it. And so, you know, if we look at Western medicine from this point of view, I mean, it makes it very clear that they're not in the interest of health. And if you look at the meaning of medicine, it's to manage something, it's not to have anything to do with curing or healing. Healing got thrown out with Descartes', you know, agreement with the church. And, mm-hmm. you know, today our so called healing traditions are basically run by pharmaceutical companies, almost all post medical school education that a physician will receive is going to be funded by a pharmaceutical company that may even pay the physician to go spend a week in the Caribbean listening to lectures about all the off-label uses of the drugs that the pharmaceutical company wants to encourage physicians to do. So we do not have a healing tradition based upon healing. We have a healing tradition that appropriates the term, but it's really just concerned with suppressing symptoms and making money. And I I think that, you know, the notion that contemporary medicine just ought to be referred to as capitalist medicine can really help us understand what's really going on here. It's not about people getting better. It's about clients that will continue to return because you got rid of the symptoms, but you didn't get rid of the causes. And in the meantime, you probably created three more symptoms, the side effects of the drug that you now need treatment for. So, I mean, in, in my you know view is that what we call medicine today doesn't deserve to be called anything related to healing. There's very little in Western medicine today that's really focused upon healing the body and nothing on healing the soul.
0: And speak about the importance of that soul, because that seems like a foreign concept to many people in the materialistic Western tradition.
1: Well, you know, what is the soul? I mean, you know, if if you look at the cross-cultural research, every society and culture has this notion of, you know, some aspect to our total being that inhabits the body, but is not the body. Mm -hmm. That may be disconnected from the body, perhaps permanently at death, you know, but that has these implicit kinds of qualities that are normally related the notion of our connection with others connection with spirit beings connection with some broader system of belief and I would like to propose that what we do is begin to understand these aspects that people everywhere sense and experience and find importance and is really reflecting aspects of our evolved psychology and of our unconscious psychodynamics um, once again you may want to reduce you know call that a reduction or reductionism uh but i think that even if you want to have a strictly spiritual interpretation of souls and spirits you are obliged to understand how they are manifested through our bodies yeah okay and so maybe it's you know you you just what you view as my you know reductionistic approach is really just trying to talk about the template through which the spiritual manifests itself, but understanding the template is important. Just like if you want to know why your TV is not getting the channel you want to watch, you know, you have to understand about how your TV is tuned, you know, yeah. and what channels are available to it, and what you need to do in order to get other channels. So I, I find the television metaphor really appropriate for talking about the human brain. You know, it, it's essential part of the message, but it's not the source of the message in all cases.
0: And that's what we call soul—is those things that are outside of our typical modes of understanding, the animator. Sure. So uh, you're you're kind of talking through healing, and if if the Western kind of capitalistic medical tradition is leaving out soul, then you're doing a cross-cultural analysis of healers since the Byzantine era. What's your critique? What what who are healers? What kind of sources do they need to pull from and how do they heal
1: well i I mean i I think from the beginning you know healing had at least two major dimensions uh three if we want to include midwifery but i'll leave that out for the moment Mm. you know one is that source natural products herbs i mean shamans used herbs they were often considered to be the experts although there normally were other herbal experts who weren't shamans. And when you look through most of the history of healing practices, people were using herbs. So the whole tradition of spiritual healing is deeply steeped in, vital you know, pharmacology. you know, we, and in many cases they saw each plant as having its own spirit that brought the qualities that treated the diseases that they were used for. I mean, the other part of the healing tradition, I think is, the ritual dynamic. And ritual is a kind of a, of a problematic and slippery term because today, you know, it's just a ritual, you know, it's a mm-hmm. deep discounting of the notion that there's anything efficacious. But I think that there are a variety of forms of our evolved consciousness that are very susceptible to ritual influences. And it may be that you need to, you know, enter into a context of belief. You may need to be with a community of believers, you know. You may need to have a, a kind of, you know, altered state dynamic to reduce your ego boundaries and to enhance access to the paleomammalian and reptilian brain. Um, but the idea is here that across time, ritual has been an important aspect of healing. And rather than discounting the ritual, I think we need to embrace the ritual, just as today. You know we have to understand what's placebo effect and what's, you know, pharmacological effect, and it's actually a very problematic phenomenon because you may have noticed recently a number of studies evaluating the effectiveness of psilocybin in the treatment of a condition. Uh, the results got washed out because the placebo group also got better. Mm-hmm. You know, so the mm-hmm. placebo is not. We, we have a misunderstanding of placebo, I think. Most of the time, oh, that's just a placebo, as if in, oh, you just think you're getting better. But no, what a placebo effect means is that you were given an inert substance, but the context of administration, read the ritual here,
2: mm-hmm.
1: produced some improvement. Your hope, your expectation, the interpersonal interaction, you know, the dynamics of the setting, whatever. So placebo effects are a core part of the healing response. And I think that this needs to be recognized as a significant aspect of healing that has gone back across all of these different spiritual healing traditions. That placebo is a healing effect that they were very good at marshalling. We also have a a, a range of uh, endorphin effects. Um, What a number of studies have established is that rhythmic movement, dance, close social contact, singing, music, all of these elicit our endorphins. And these endorphins make us feel better, they make us feel more connected with other people, they help resolve emotional problems, and they may have some very significant feed-forward effects upon our immunological system. So to me, when we begin to understand spiritual healing, I mean, sure, accuse me of reducing it to these things, but I'm not saying that those are the only mechanism, mm-hmm. but I'm saying these are the necessary mechanisms. And I would expand that to include the alterations of consciousness. I mean, what happens in the brain when we enter into an altered state of consciousness really is, you know, moving into the relaxation response, counteracting the stress responses, you know, entering into, in con- into contact with our own unconscious, engaging at a deeper level and understanding of our own emotional issues. So to me, this is another part of the package of what has spiritual healing always been? And I think it was you know inevitable that it was attributed to human beings, or human-like beings, the spirits, because of the way our brain is structured. and because one of the things that elicits placebo effect and hypnotic effect, are powerful, protective others. You know, physicians that are seen as being powerful, protective, and competent have placebo effects several times higher than those that don't have those qualities. Mm -hmm. But even what doctors are doing is in large part based upon a kind of placebo effect. And so in this sense, I think we have to pay attention to those dynamics as part of understanding what was spiritual healing always along the way.
0: And you note many of those uh, ritual dancing, drumming, chanting, herbs, uh, belief um, we we're, we're we have some of those today. I think you mentioned in your book, of course the lab coat is a is a signal of authority and it's a it's a persona based image, and we project onto that and that has power I, I think uh, I, I think that's really important to note that. It's it's almost um, an egoic move here to presume that because I can't control causality and have a one-to-one correspondence between what I do and the effect, I just kick it out with this, uh, you know, under this heading of placebo effect, because that violates the materialistic assumptions of being able to observe, measure, and produce a given result, which is just an interesting phenomena that we. We don't even look at it or value it. It's just like, oh yeah, placebo effect. That's that's. I think it's because
1: people fundamentally misunderstand the placebo effect. Even physicians fundamentally misunderstand the placebo effect. Mm -hmm. You know, they they think that it's you know not real. It is real, but it's a symbolically mediated physiological response.
0: Well, what what is made unreal is the value or the nature of the symbol in this system. Not is, recognize
1: it being symbolic.
0: Yeah, 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 radical. Um, okay, so I'm aware of our time, and I want to be sure we have plenty of runway to close out. Um, the one thing that I also wanted to get into here, and I want to find my notes. Um, well, I'll I, see one thing here I'll talk to you if you cool. go. You ask about the value
1: of cross-cultural studies. Yes. Which has been an important tool that I've used to come to a number of understandings about the nature of shamanism. And and so, you know, the idea here is that, you know, if we try to understand, for instance, what is shamanism from the perspective of any one culture, today we have a a horrible problem that everybody thinks, you know, that their grandmother's a shaman, that, you know, their drug dealer's a shaman, and that the crazy lady down the street's a shaman too, Mm -hmm. you know. So my approach was trying to understand whether or not there really was a cross-cultural phenomenon to start with. And so my approach Going back to my dissertation, that was the subject of a book called *Shamans, Priests, and Witches*. That I used the cross-cultural sample, 186 societies that span, you know, the known ethnographic universe, as you mentioned, going all the way back to the Babylonians and what we know about them and their healing practices, you know, through mid 20th century. And it's a sample that has a lot of other data already coded for it. So I used a subsample of that. To code for the characteristics of the healers, the religious practitioners, more broadly. I mean, I, I decided I couldn't even just try to limit it to healers. I, I was interested in what religious practitioners were like. And so created a variable set, literally over 100 variables, and used that to try to determine whether or not there were cross-cultural similarities in religious practices. And the interesting thing here is that this kind of flies in the face of long-standing you know, social science perspectives that have considered religion just to be an arbitrary set of beliefs. Mm-hmm. Whatever you want to believe is religion. Everybody has their own religion. Religion is you know in individually culturally unique, you know, set of beliefs. Well, what my cross-cultural approach was able to show is that there are very substantial cross-cultural patterns in the way that religious practitioners are selected and trained their powers, what they heal, how they engage in divination, you know, their social relations, a whole range of features that are very similar across cultures. They're not identical across cultures. In fact, if we conclude the whole group of, of practitioners, there are very dramatic differences between different kinds of practitioners. There are priests, and priests are not like shamans. There are mediums, and mediums are not like shamans. So What my cross-cultural research was able to show were that there was this common pattern of spiritual healing practice found in hunter-gatherer societies. This is what has driven the intuition about shamanism being a cultural universal. But the pattern of behavior that exists in hunter-gathering societies pretty quickly dissipates in agricultural societies, particularly when they get political hierarchies. In fact, I would make the argument, based upon converging evidence, is that the only thing that was left of shamanism for Western culture were the people that were persecuted as witches.
2: Hmm.
1: And even those weren't all shamans. But that's another dynamic that emerges. You know, priestly-like organizations emerge under agriculture. They're inherited positions. You know, they depend upon the ancestors. They engage in agricultural rituals. They provide for purifications and blessings. In cleansings, and they have a lot of social power. They run the judiciary, you know. They're in charge of the government, and they decide who's a witch and needs to be killed. So there's a whole dynamic of religious practice that I've recently gone back and done some reanalysis, and um, you know, sort of recontextualized what I did in shamans, priests, and witches. I uh, think it's called a, a biogenetic and ethnological model of religion and ritual. But the idea here is that we can make a lot of well-grounded inferences about the nature of religious practices in the past using models that are derived from cross-cultural research. And they show us that religion is not arbitrary, but it has a variety of different organizational principles. One related to alter states of consciousness and endogenous healing processes. A second related to the power of ancestor systems and their control of agricultural productivity the government and then there's this sector of the witches that really are shamanistic healers that are being persecuted by priests and healers because they're a competing ideology and a competing set of practices and a competing set of loyalties yeah and so you know i think that it's kind of interesting if you look at you know the word witch and then look at its etymology you know the origin of it from a linguistic point of view there's nothing horrible evil destructive about the roots of of witch and wick manifested in Wicca. It has to do with clan-based organization. It has to do with images and imitation, has to do with the power of the wind and wine. I mean, it has totally different set of meanings that have nothing at all to do with what is projected as witchcraft. Why? Because what we consider to be witchcraft had origins in something very different.
2: Mm
0: Thank you for that uh, so what what is your critique of what you're seeing in shamanism today what you mentioned it earlier that you know yeah woman down the street everybody's a shaman.
1: Well you know I'll just briefly summarize what I found to be the features that were characteristic of shamans and forging societies so the religious practitioners of forging societies that I label as shamans. They, they were selected on the basis of illness and trauma, uh, spirit visitations, dreams. They underwent uh, a vigorous period of training, often alone in the wilderness, prolonged periods of fasting, uh, often taking emetics and psychoactive substances. They encountered spirit beings that came uh, first to kill them, to dismember them, to eat them. And then, normally, these spirit animals put the initiate back together, remembered him, reformed him. Um, these were typically males, although females were allowed. Uh, they weren't allowed to practice during childbearing years, but before and after they were. Um, these practitioners were thought to get their powers from animals, uh, that they incorporated animal powers, that they were thought to be able to turn into animals. Uh, this typically happened during an out-of-body experience in which they were thought to leave their body and go to other worlds, other planes of the world, or other areas in this world, often in animal form. Uh, they were thought to heal illnesses related to soul loss. The person's soul had left their body to recover the lost soul. Also, illnesses due to uh, sorcery, injury caused by other shamans. And shamans were uniformly in forging societies thought to be able to cause illness and death to other people. So, you know, when people say today, oh, oh I'm a shaman. Uh, I say, oh, well, how many people have you killed? Well, I don't kill people. I'm a shaman. Well, no, that's what shamans did in pre-modern societies. They were believed to kill people. You know, And so to me, if you look at the dynamics of what were the healing practitioners of forging societies, It just doesn't correspond to what you find today. Even if you go look at, you know, what are ayahuasca shamans? I mean, you know, these people have very few of the features related to the forging shamans. So to me, the terms become almost useless because it's grossly overextended. Mm -hmm. And its overextension has to do with applying it basically to anybody who does a ritual or enters an altered state of consciousness or heals. And I think if the term is going to be useful, it needs to be Differentiated, for instance, many people today will apply the term shaman to what I would call, on my empirical analysis, a medium. There's someone who is possessed, shamans weren't possessed, taken over by a superior spirit, a male often, a male deity takes over them. Could be a female, but it's a powerful other person. They're thought to go through tremors and convulsions, and they have amnesia. They're normally low social status people in their group, uh, and their healing is of, you know, giving blessings, giving purification, or exorcism. And you know, we just just like you know, this doesn't dovetail and hardly anything at all with what we're shamans. Now, I've tried to provide a conceptual framework to sort of gloss over those differences and extract the commonalities and this came out of my formal data research it's universal that we find healers who use altered states of consciousness and ritual settings to interact with spirits for healing and divination so every culture has that kind of practice i would say this is one of the biogenetic origins of religion it has to do with the intrinsic properties of the brain that allow for altered states of consciousness to produce integrative healing states and to use ritual to enhance placebo effects, hypnotic effects, expectancy effects, social bonding, and to use things such as singing and dancing and group agglomeration to elicit the endogenous uh, opioid system. Mm -hmm. And that these kinds of experiences are why ritual healing is a human universal. So I would call, shamanistic healers people who use altar states with rituals to heal with spirit interventions but you know that's much more than what i would want to call shamans but we can call them shamanistic healers if we want to accept that shamanism was the original manifestation and origin of these kinds of practices
0: you mentioned something about a male spirit it- Oftentimes today, what what I've hear, heard just from talking to folks is that with ayahuasca, for example, or, um, or or DMT, of course, that there's a female, feminine energy, energy or goddess or some kind of fairy or something that people encounter. Do you notice any trends in the quality or the the content of the visions that people have throughout history?
1: Well, I mean, I I think it would be easy to say, you know, in shamanic societies, it was the animals that showed up. It was animal power. But if if you're a forager, you're wandering, you know, from place to place every day, I mean, the animals are the most important elements of the environment. Not just because you eat some and some eat you, but because animals are warning systems. Animals are communication systems. Animals respond to other animals or other groups of people. So... Shamans paid attention to animals, animals were the visions, animals were what were thought to kill the shamans, animals were the source of shaman's powers, (coughs) animals were the vehicle through which shamans could travel. Mm. So clearly early on animals were very prominent in visions. Now when you go to, you know, the kind of ecstatic religious traditions of the Greeks, you know, other Middle Eastern cultures, uh, this whole, you know, range of, you know, mystical and mystery schools, well, all of a sudden, the relationships are different. You know, the shaman was traveling to the lower worlds to encounter the animal powers. Now the mystical initiate travels to the celestial realms, mm. you know, and they encounter angels and they encounter archangels and they encounter, you know, God or other powerful, you know, people. Uh, and, you know, the whole you know, issue is more one about, you know, purifying and uniting oneself with deity rather than, you know, uniting oneself with an animal. So clearly, you know, the, the accounts of visionary experiences that you find in literature change across time. You get to mediumism, mediumship, I mean, even the visionary capacity seems to be subordinated to an emphasis upon the spoken word, the word of the gods. And so it's, you know, words now rather than
0: visions. hmm uh well just in service to close out a uh, couple questions uh, when was the last time and under what circumstances did you have your mind blown well
1: i mean i guess i, I would say that you know the the most significant ayahuasca experience i had was my first ritual ayahuasca experience and it occurred in Missouri, of all places, at a friend of mine's house, who was a psychotherapist. And she had a uh, an American who had been trained in the ayahuasca traditions of Peru, you know, as the ritualist. And um, in, in the context of that ceremony, I went through a lot of different kinds of You know, efforts to define what my intention and purpose was going to be. And in the very end, I just decided to talk to the ayahuasca in Spanish and tell it just to show me whatever it was I needed to know. And um, for better or for worse, the revelations I got that night sent me on my path to Brazil eventually. Perhaps the, uh, the most you know, interesting and, and quirky part of it all was, you know I'd never been to Brazil at that time, but while I was in that ceremony, in that session, someone who I'd only met once sent me an invitation to be his invited guest to participate in an ayahuasca retreat down in Brazil. I mean, he's literally writing this while I'm having this vision of apocalyptic ends to the earth and the need to figure out where my path forward is. So the fact that he was basically inviting me to go to Brazil and participate in ayahuasca sessions while I'm basically doing my first ayahuasca ritual. To me, I was just like, man, how does the world come together that way?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, the, the synchronicities are kind of part of that unseen mystery. The other piece is, you you kind of mentioned it earlier, but what are your concerns about what are happening with psychedelics or what's happening with the psychedelic landscape right now? What's your word of caution? Well, you know, I guess my first thing would be
1: is that, you know, everybody's talking about the psychedelic renaissance, but most of these substances are still Schedule One, and you can't even get them for research purposes. So, you know, it's sort of like, you know, I don't think we have really got to the Renaissance yet. You know, we're, we're still, I mean, things are looking up, but we're still in the dark ages of psychedelic research. Simple, simple fact. Um, The other thing is that, you know, the emerging, you know, trends of the commercialization, you know, and you know, the models now are that, well, this is, you know, a a break even, you know, prospect if people are paying $5,000 for a weekend psychedelic session with medical supervision. I mean, that leaves it, you know, beyond the availability of most people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then just the whole trend towards medicalization. I mean, that somehow we're going to need a doctor to give us a prescription to use this stuff. I mean, this is like, you know, I mean, I I think that, you know, psychedelics should be used with responsible supervision, particularly for first-time users, for people with taking, you know, super heroic doses. For people with, you know, various, you know, medical or psychological conditions, I think it's important that they have supervision, at least initially. But, you know, we've been using these things probably for 5 million years. It's not like we need to have another, you know, double blind study to be sure that somehow, you know, we can use these things without, you know, easily killing ourselves. I mean, anybody that's killed themselves with psychedelics is probably either fallen asleep out in the forest at night and went into hypothermia or they tried to fly off the top of a building, Mm -hmm. you know. And if we can try to avoid those two, you know, scenarios, I think psychedelics ought to be as easy to get as, you know, at least medicinal marijuana, if not just totally decriminalized. But at the same time, you know, I I don't think that, you know, that pre-adolescents ought to be using these things. And I think that adolescents, you know, probably ought to be introduced to them in in well-structured settings. Um, I, I I do not want to downplay the seriousness of psychedelic related problems. I mean, I've, I've had people recently just coming to me and just like, you know, you can't believe how bad, you know, my life is now since I've done psychedelics, mm-hmm. you know, the goblins don't go away. You know, the DMT elves are always there. There's somebody out to get me, you know, I can't make the visions go away. So, yeah, we need some kind of orientation for people to use these substances. You know, we need some kind of structured setting. But I don't think that making doctors in charge of this is going to really, you know, help us move forward in any kind of substantial way as a spiritual practice. Now, you know, if you want to make doctors in charge of, you know, treating Alzheimer's patients or people with treatment resistant depression, great. Give the doctors the right to do that. But don't take away our right to our own religious freedoms. I think we ought to consider the right to use psilocybin as an inherent religious right. We know that it induces spiritual experiences and mystical experiences. We know that humans around the world have used it for tens of thousands of years, if not for millions of years. And this is a human birthright. And I think that's how it ought to be considered and it ought to be protected as such.
0: Well, and then, thank you. and, and then in closing, are there any of those questions that you see that we didn't get to that you'd like to answer or any other threads that are left hanging that we need to close up before uh, tie up before we finish? Well, I don't know if there's any threads that we really need to, to
1: tie together here. And maybe I'll just, you know, sort of make it a, a sort of summary notion that, you know, shamanism is practiced in pre-modern societies with a remarkably similar pattern around the world. And so one of the points I didn't make about cross-cultural research is that it helps us identify human universals. Mm -hmm. When we identify human universals, then we have likely identified some kind of biologically based phenomena. I think we ought to see shamanism as an evolved social psychology, an evolved Mm -hmm. structure of our brains and minds that was in part shaped by the ability to facilitate the use of these substances for constructive purposes. That in essence, shamanism evolved as a communal healing practice, but we individually also evolved to be able to take advantage of that kind of communal, psychedelic-inspired healing practice. And so we need to really, in going forward, I think, try to recover a good understanding of just what it was that shamanism involved in this pre-modern context, how rituals were performed, Mm. what kind of activities were engaged in, and ultimately what kind of illnesses were treated. And in this sense, I think that we can see a better path forward to how it is that medical as well as non-medical use of psychedelics might optimize what's called set and setting. I published an article a year or two ago called the evolved psychology of set and setting. I'm trying to turn this whole notion of set and setting on its head. Normally set and setting is thought to be individual personal kinds of, you know, preferences. But what we have to understand is that when it comes to psychedelics, we have an innate set and setting Mm. and it's not going to soccer games or watching wrestling matches. You know, it's with a community of people at nighttime You know, using music, using dance, using drama, using sound as a healing envelope. And so I've tried to outline these ideas. I have another article, I think, you know, Shamanic Guidelines for Psychedelic Medicine. I've tried to synthesize what it is that we know about how psychedelics and and how shamanic healing in general was done. And I think that this provides us with a, a way to go forward using the wisdom of ancestral traditions to better shape our healing practices today.
0: And where would you like people to find you? You can look below, of course. I'll post all the links on, our, uh, on the show notes. But would you direct people to your site?
1: Well, you know, I have my website, michaelwinkelman.com. But, I, you know, every time I've tried to contract someone to upgrade it, they take the money and leave. Uh, people want to get, get my uh, re- articles. Go to researchgate.net. If you've got an academic address, you can easily get a, an account there. I probably have 150 articles there ranging from shamanism to the evolution of religion to psychedelics to psychedelic healing that I've got out there available to people. So best place to get my stuff for free all in one place is there at researchgate.net. That's
0: a good recommendation. Uh, thank you, Michael Winkleman. I will have all of those links available. I have thoroughly enjoyed connecting with you and reading your work, and I will continue to do so and reference it for many years to come. I I I just am so thankful of this uh muse that you started following years ago and looking at cross cultural analysis. I'm uh, I'm certainly standing on your shoulders, so to speak. So thank you very much for what you do. Great.
1: Pleasure, John. I'm glad to help share word with people there. I think we need to understand this part of our innate nature and our perhaps inalienable religious and spiritual rights.
0: Well said.
2: Sure.